On my way to teach a class on the subject of preaching in both Moldova and Belarus some years ago, Elsie and I stopped and visited Rome. Cathedrals and basilicas are beautiful, inspiring works of art dedicated to the glory of God. But their empty, silent pews are testimony to the fact that the message which transforms the heart is always more important than buildings built with hands. That said, to stand in the Sistine Chapel and view Michelangelo's painting on the ceiling was absolutely breathtaking. But folks, the, the moment that, that really gripped my heart was peering over a, a marble railing at a tomb below us there in the basilica. It is purported to be the tomb of the Apostle Peter, thus the name St. Peter's Basilica. Now, I don't know if it's really the body of Simon Peter, but the thought that it might be the earthly remains of the great fisherman caught my breath. I had goosebumps. I was standing at the tomb of Simon Peter. But if you're going to start a revolution that you hope would impact the entire world for generations to come, would you choose an impetuous, rough-around-the-edges Galilean fisherman with no formal education? Uh, probably not. I suspect of the 12, most of us in this room at a glance would have voted Judas Iscariot most likely to succeed. After all, folks, Judas was the only one from Judea. All the rest of the guys were from Galilee. And from Judea suggests, well, a bit more culture, a bit more education. Uh, and he was treasurer of the apostles, which means then that he was probably good at handling money, which means he was probably pretty organized. Of all the 12, Judas Iscariot probably would be most successful. And if we had voted that way, we would have been disastrously wrong. As to the revolution that gave birth to the church, it still has an impact in this world. And it all started with Peter. So what did Jesus do to make such a profound impact upon the fishermen from Galilee, who then in turn made such a profound impact on history? What did Jesus see in this man that so impacted the future as he preached the gospel for the first time. If you're familiar with any of the individual disciples, you're likely familiar with Peter considering the role he plays in many of the gospel accounts and beyond. Whether it was walking on water, denying Jesus, fighting to defend Jesus, or challenging Jesus, Peter was bold. And it was his bold leadership that launched the church into existence and gave it direction during its infancy. How did he do it? Through the power of the Holy Spirit and the mentoring of Jesus. Jesus didn't choose Peter because he had it all together or because he stood out amongst all the others. He chose Peter because he saw potential in him that no one else could. And after three years of walking with Jesus, Peter was ready to lead the revolution that God intended to change the world forever. This morning, we're going to take a look at two moments in Peter's life. They, they are profound moments in my estimation. One happens at the very beginning of his journey in the revolution. One happens at the very end of what we see uh, as, as this time with Jesus. And they are, they are eerily similar. As a matter of fact, they serve as bookends on this relationship that Jesus and Peter shared.
And I'm going to take a look at them briefly this morning. And the first one we find in Luke chapter 5. And we, and we read that the crowds had filled the shoreline leading down to the water's edge. And so great was the press of the people upon Jesus that Jesus needed some space to step back, but he was at the water's edge. And so there was a boat. And there were fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, partners in this fishing business, and they were cleaning their nets. Uh, they had been out all night. They had caught nothing. Nothing is more tiring and wearying than working hard and accomplishing nothing. And as the crowd pressed upon Jesus, Jesus stepped into the boat. Strong man that he was, he could have easily pushed off. But he asked Simon Peter to, um, to use his boat as a pulpit for teaching. Now, they had met on other occasions, remember? Uh, when Andrew first met Jesus, he was quick to introduce Jesus to his brother Simon. And at that point in time, Jesus renames or gives Simon a nickname, which is Peter, which means rock. And that's what we know him as mostly throughout the rest of the New Testament. And then right before this event, Jesus had healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, which would have made a huge impact on the entire family. So this was not some impertinent move on Jesus' part. It was just an inconvenience for a weary fisherman. Cleaning the seaweed and unwanted debris out of the fishing nets was a tedious job. And about the time that Peter finishes up, Jesus finishes up the lesson. And then it says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down for a catch. Okay, folks, this is where Jesus, the Jewish rabbi and former carpenter, steps way over the line. Any good fisherman knew that midday fishing was a waste of time. As the sun rose higher in the sky, the fish went deeper into the water to the cooler waters and would be out of the range of the nets. Besides, the night had proven to be a total waste of time. It, it, their nets were empty. So if the night was bad, how could the daytime be any better? Their nets were now clean. I mean, this was a task they had to do every morning, regardless of the catch. They had to clean their nets to get them ready for the following night when they would be out fishing once again. The nets were clean. Peter was tired. Peter was hungry. And he was a bit financially less sound than the day before. They had nothing to sell. No money today. You can almost hear the exhaustion in his voice as he responds. Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night, haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, when you read behind, between the lines on this one, there's a lot more that he's saying, obviously more. Master, I wouldn't offend you purposely, but I've been a fisherman all my life. I know this lake like the back of my hand. I know where the fish are. I know where the fish are not. Perhaps you should stick to preaching and let me stick to the fishing. But, in order that you'll have a chance to learn an important lesson, we'll sail out and dirty our nets one more time. With less than enthusiastic effort, Peter and Andrew cast the net into the water. Now, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but I have a feeling. Peter said, you want to fish Jesus? Here, you hold one of the ropes. Can't you just see Peter sort of doing that? And, and there they stand. Peter's not making eye contact with Jesus. He's, he's a bit, I think, frustrated. And there they, there they are. Lake is calm. The rope is slack in their hands. Nothing is happening. And then, all of a sudden, 
the sea begins to boil with marine life and the sunlight begins to glint off of the silvery bodies of the wriggling fish and almost blinding them and the ropes that had been slack in their hands suddenly go taut and then they hear the ropes begin to creak and then to begin to tear and they begin to pull and, and Peter desperately calls for James and John who hurry out to the place and they begin to load the fish into both of the boats. So big was the catch. It was a record catch that both boats were low in the water and were nearly over swamped before they got back to shore and don't you know don't you know Peter hasn't looked at Jesus when everything calms down Peter is not calm and and he looks over at Jesus finally and and I the Bible doesn't say but I think Jesus is trying to stifle a smile I think it's you know I mean Jesus knew this was going to happen he knew exactly what would take place Peter's not smiling Peter's not laughing he is dumbstruck He is awed. He falls to his knees with the understanding that he has no right to be in the presence of the one whose power and dominion even include the fish of the sea. Luke 5 verse 8 says, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the son of Zebedee, Simon's partners. But the divine response to to Peter's comment is not a voice that thunders over the surface of the water, shaking the mountains around the Sea of Galilee. No, it's the compassionate voice of a simple carpenter turned preacher who reassures Simon with these words, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And when they reached the shore, they left everything and followed Jesus. Now, now some people think that Simon, Peter, and the rest of them gave up the fishing industry. They they didn't. Their their family still needed to be supported. And so they left, I believe, their fishing business in the hands of their employees. They probably checked in with them on occasion. Because when we get to the end of the story, you'll find out that they'd gone back to fishing. You see, this wasn't about leaving their business. It was about following Jesus and making that secondary. And Peter couldn't have known it at the time, but this deep-sea fishing expedition would forever change the trajectory of his life and his death. On the shores of Galilee, a simple life ended and a revolution began. Every one of us in this room needs a moment like that. A moment where the old life ends and the new one begins. Where a temporal calling gives way to an eternal calling. Where indifference gives way to determination. What Peter learned there We need to learn. What Jesus saw in Peter there, I hope he sees in us. Here's some of the way the story breaks down. Be willing to serve others. Be willing to serve others. Peter was tired and frustrated. A whole night's work had been without reward. I mean, Jesus was a strong man. He could have asked to use the boat and row it out a few yards. We would not be critical of Peter if he had said something like this. Help yourself to my boat, Jesus. I'm a little busy right now. You just go ahead and use it. He didn't. Despite his weariness, despite his frustration, Peter pushed off and rowed out a little bit. I believe his impetuous nature throughout the Gospels would suggest that Peter was a, was a fix-it kind of guy. He was always trying to solve problems. I mean, Peter was always the first to speak up, wasn't he? Even though he didn't always have the right answer. And Peter was the first, as a matter of fact, he was the only one to step out of the boat when Jesus said, hey, I'm walking on the water, you come. And, and Peter walked on the water until he took his eyes off of Jesus. 
And Peter was the first one to draw a sword and whack off the high priest's servant's ear right there in the Garden of Gethsemane to help protect Jesus, even though Jesus rebuked him for it. True discipleship, team players, are those who work to accomplish the goal. They will go the extra mile to solve the problem, who face the issues head on, regardless of their weariness or their frustration. They continue to give their best. I think that's what we see in Peter. Peter may not always had the best response, folks. Ah, but Peter always had the best intentions. You see, Jesus had a pulpit problem, and Peter solved it with the bow of his boat. Being a part of our Lord's revolution demands a servant heart. So when you're tired and you're frustrated and God calls you to do something to serve, what's your response? Having all the right answers isn't enough. God is more interested in having a right heart. Jesus said in Matthew 20, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. God scores greatness differently than the world. God does not grade on the curve. You either have a servant's heart or you don't. It's like fishing. You you either catch the fish or you don't. There's no in between. So do you have a servant's heart this morning? Recently, one of our Sherwood Oaks folks contacted the church office about an elderly widow, a neighbor of theirs who, who needed help. A team of men from this congregation responded. And, and this is a portion of the letter we got back. My husband and I have attended SOCC since the end of December. We had a need in our rural area in Monroe County, a recently widowed elderly lady needing, needing some help in yard work. She had tried to get contractors to come give estimates, but nobody would even return her calls. I reached out to the basic contact on the church's website and within a few hours was connected with Kevin King and his ministry team. The team was there early on Saturday morning showing the love of Christ to a very lonely, unchurched elderly lady. I cannot thank you enough. Praise God. I love being a part of a congregation where there are those folks whose servant heart dominates everything they do. That comes first, serving Jesus. I'm sure these guys had other things to do. Probably were tired. Who knows if some of them were frustrated for things happening. But they stepped up Hit the ball out of the park because you see a servant's heart. Why? That's the way a revolutionary lives. Here's something else. Be ready to follow instructions. From a human perspective, Jesus' instructions to Peter were way off. I mean, putting out into the deep in daylight would be a colossal waste of time. The amateur here was telling the professional how and where to fish. But against his better judgment and against his experience... Notice what Peter did. He submissively followed the instructions that did not make sense to him. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Learn to follow before you lead. Learn to obey God even when you don't understand why he asks it. I'm not talking, folks, about blind allegiance. I'm talking about trusting God because he has proven himself over and over and over again to be faithful to us. Our eight-year-old granddaughter, Addie, asked me a tough question this last week. She said, Da, why doesn't God just get rid of evil? That's a pretty profound question for an eight-year-old. And and then she sort of answered it a little bit. She said, "I, I know that we need a choice. All right, she's beginning to pick up on some of the theology behind that question. And it's true. 
For love to be genuine love, there has to be a choice. If, if, if you have to love God or you have to love God or you get the choice to love God or you get to love, the choice to love God, that's not a choice. There's no love in that. You have no choice. Love only works in a situation where you choose to love. I get that. that that's a deep theological part of this. And, and then the other question is, by what definition does God choose to eliminate evil? I mean, whose definition then, where does God draw the line on evil? Do you understand what I'm saying? If God gets rid of the evil, where, where does he draw the line? Because all of us have a different definition. Organized crime probably has a different definition of evil than I do. I probably have a different definition of evil than maybe somebody from the Amish community would have. So what definition does God use? And, and do you realize that every one of us in this auditorium this morning at any given moment is capable of doing something evil? And do you realize that every one of us in this auditorium is guilty of thinking something evil? So if God rid the world of all evil, would any of us be left? You see the dilemma? It's not an easy answer. But I have learned in my years of life, that God is worth following, that God is worth trusting, that God is worth obeying, even when I cannot understand or answer the questions. Addie's question is still a good one. I don't have a great answer for it. But it, comes, but it becomes one of those things that we deal with in this life, knowing that the God of the universe has our back and that we can trust him even though we cannot understand. As a fisherman, Peter couldn't understand all of the things that were going on, but he knew God was worthy. May I ask you the question this morning, how good are you at taking advice or following instructions? God has yet to be proven wrong, so why are we so reluctant to heed his advice? I mean, I got questions that when we get home to heaven, I want to ask. And, and maybe, <laughs> maybe when we get home, folks, we won't even need to ask. Maybe we'll just understand it. Have you ever considered, have you ever considered what this world would be like if everyone here, if, if everyone in the world would just follow the last six commandments? Not, not all ten, just the last six. Honor your parents, don't steal, don't murder, don't be an adulterer, don't lie, and don't covet what somebody else has or is. Just six. That alone would transform our society. Six profound statements about how to treat one another as we would want to be treated. We can't even follow six. What's wrong with us? Well, I've never murdered anyone. Well, have you ever gossiped and taken the life out of somebody else's reputation? Well, I've never committed adultery. Have you always been faithful to the Lord and to his bride, the church? Well, I've never lied. You just did. The Lord is looking for those in his kingdom who demonstrate a readiness to follow instructions even when we cannot explain the answer. After all, Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If you have a pulse, you have a purpose to love him through obedience. Follow his instructions. You see, that's a revolutionary way to live. Here's something else. Be humble. Share the credit. I, you could almost see Peter coming back into shore saying, I knew it, I knew it. I knew if we tried daylight fishing, it'd work. Look at the catch that I brought in. 
Bless his heart, Peter was humble. You know the people I'm talking about, the people who are always right. They always have the best ideas. You have to do it their way. If somebody's got to be in charge, they got to be in charge. The list is, is endless. They don't make good followers. They make even worse leaders. Oh, but Peter's humble response was, Lord, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Don't stand too close, Jesus. I might rub off on you. Humility is an honest appraisal of who we are. It's not overstating or understating our abilities. After all, false humility demeans the gifts that God gave us to be used for his divine purpose. False humility, therefore, is as detrimental, detrimental as no humility. This great C.S. Lewis quote is worth repeating. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. That's a revolutionary way to live. And then this, be ambitious, accept his challenge. Jesus said something like this, if you guys like fishing for these wriggly, scaly things, boy, do I have a challenge for you. From here on out, you're going to be fishing for people. Notice what Peter and his partners did. In verse 11, it says, so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. They left behind the little fish for the much bigger, life-changing catch. And that was just the revolutionary response Jesus was looking for. Now, I haven't seen the movie, but I understand that in the latest Mission Impossible uh, movie, Fallout, uh, that Tom Cruise, once again, does all of his own stunts. One of those stunts is actually parachuting out of the rear door of a C-17 military cargo plane in the movie. And it was called a halo jump. That's a high altitude, low opening kind of thing. It's, 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 it's a dangerous jump. But, but Tom Cruise did his own jump. Did you know that he had to do it 106 times before they got it exactly right for the movie? A hundred and I'd have talked to the cameraman and said, wait a minute, guy. You got to get this right. God challenges us to be aware. Tom was ambitious to get this done that way. He should have been that ambitious and invested as much time in other areas and relationships of his life and he'd be a whole lot better off. But God challenges us to be real. Hey, listen, if an actor can jump out of the back of a cargo plane 106 times to make just a movie, what kind of ambition should God expect from us for the one who gave his life that we might have everlasting life in heaven with him. You see, God's challenge to us is to be real. No one else can step in and accept the challenge on our behalf. There are no spiritual stuntmen to take our place in the tough moments of life. Being ambitious for Jesus is a revolutionary way to live. Well, after three years with Jesus, Peter makes the the worst blunder of his life. It was Thursday night after their meal in the upper room. It was after Peter's had so boldly proclaimed that he would die for Jesus. It was after Peter, along with James and John, fell asleep in the garden while Jesus needed their prayer support so desperately. And it was after Jesus drew out his little sword and swacked off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus was then hauled away by the soldiers. The disciples fled into the night. And only Peter followed at a distance, slipping into the courtyard of the high priest's house to find out what was going on with Jesus. And that's when it happens. I, I, I don't know what changed. I don't know if he lost his nerve. I don't know what his motive was. But three times he is asked about 
he as a follower of Jesus. Three times this ardent disciple denied that he even knew Jesus, let alone followed him. He was so adamant that he swore an oath that he didn't know. And at that moment, somewhere off in the distance, but within earshot, the sound of the rooster. And the words come back, Luke 22, just as he, Peter, was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. What was in that look? What kind of, can you imagine locking eyes with Jesus at that moment? Some people say, well, it was an I told you so look. Well, maybe, but I don't think so. That just doesn't seem to be the style of Jesus. I think it was a heartbroken look. I think it was an anguished look. Peter, I need you. Peter, the revolution depends on you. And Peter knew he had severely dropped the ball. He goes out and weeps bitterly. I got to wonder, what kind of look would Jesus give us if he were here this morning? What would his eyes say to us? The, crucifix the crucifixion of Jesus took place the next day, followed by the resurrection on Sunday. Everyone is thrilled beyond words. Peter is thrilled beyond words, but he doesn't know. He doesn't know what this relationship with the Lord is. I mean, after all, the very last encounter they have is this look. When, when Jesus peered through the lattice of the high priest's house and Peter knows he's been caught He's been caught dying Jesus. So what happens next? In the 40 days between the resurrection and his ascension, these guys have gone back to their fishing business, and then they have one of those nights. Here's the, here's the second story. This is the bookend on the other end. They have the same kind of night that they had way back here that we started with. It was one of those nights where they didn't catch a thing. They are tired. They are hungry. They are coming in feeling that worthless effort kind of night. And there's a man they see off on the beach through the haze of that early morning light with a charcoal fire cooking breakfast. And the voice hollers out from the shore in John 21, Friends, haven't you any fish? Do you not love this? The voice of Jesus, friends. That includes Peter. No, they answered. He said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And they did. And they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And immediately Peter knows who it is. There is no doubt who it is. He's been down this road before. He's been on this fishing trip before. And he knows it's Jesus. And after that breakfast, it is the spiritual food that Jesus offers to Peter that is more important than the physical. And this time it's not answers, it's questions. John 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Oh, this, this, this is so profound. This is so significant. How many times did Peter deny knowing Jesus? Three times. How many times does Jesus ask him, do you love me? Three times. That had to cut right to the heart. 
But it's deeper than that. In my estimation, it's deeper than that. Our English translation doesn't do justice to the conversation that's going on here. We have one word for love in the English language. The Greeks had four, four different words for love in their language. And, and the questions go back and forth. In the first question, first two questions, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me with the love of God? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, I love you like a brother. But the third time Jesus asks the question, it's, Peter, do you even love me like a brother? And Peter responds, oh, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you like a brother. It's a painful moment, but it is a moment when God's grace begins to heal the hurt. It is at this moment that Peter has to examine his fears, his failures, and his faith. The conversation ends as it had begun three years before. Follow me. Sometimes we need the answers like, hey, throw your net on the right side. You'll, you'll get a catch. That's a good answer. But contrary to popular belief, we don't always need the answers. What we need more is the questions that challenge our commitment, our failures, our fears, and our faith, our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that Jesus gave him a job. Peter's not out of the loop. He's back into the loop. Three times Jesus asked him the question, but three times he also said, I got a job for you. Feed my sheep. He didn't tell him how. He just said, this is the job you have to do. Using his own tools, his own creativity, his own talent, you feed my sheep. Folks, here is the bottom line this morning. In our Christian lives, there will be more questions than answers. At times, God's purposes will seem obvious, and at times, they will be obscure. There will be times when the answers are clear and at times God will be silent and just expect us to take what talents that we have and serve him. But always, always, there is this expectation that we will be willing to serve others, be ready to follow instructions, that we will be humble, that we will be ambitious, that we will love Jesus deeply from the heart and that we will care for his sheep. When Peter died, according to history and church tradition, he was crucified upside down in Rome because Peter said, I am not worthy to die like my Lord. And so they crucified him upside down. No wonder. No wonder we remember him as the great fisherman. How will you be remembered in history's greatest revolution? Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.